0: Section Nineteen of The American Rivals of Sherlock Holmes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary in Arkansas. The American Rivals of Sherlock Holmes. The Adventures of the Infallible Goldall. By Frederick Irving Anderson. Part Two. Half an hour later, they were all seated over coffee and cigarettes in Mrs. Wentworth's boudoir. It was indeed a strange place. There was scarcely a single corner of the world that had not contributed something to its furnishings carvings of teak and ivory, hangings of sweet scented vegetable fibres, lamps of jade, queer little gods, all sitting like Buddha with their legs drawn up under them, carved out of jade or sardonyx, scarves of baroque pearls, Darjeeling turquoises armiston had never before seen such a collection and each item had its story he began to look on this frail little woman with different eyes she had been and seen and done and the tale of her life what she actually lived outshone even that of that glittering rascal godall who was standing beside him now and directing his ceaseless questions have you any rubies he asked mrs wentworth bent before a safe in the wall with swift fingers she whirled the combination. The keen eyes of Armiston followed the bright knob like a cat. Fact number three, said the Godall in him, as he mentally made notes of the numbers. Five, eight, seven, four, six—that's the combination. Mrs. Wentworth showed him six pigeon-blood rubies. This one is pale, he said carelessly, holding a particularly large stone up to the light is it true that occasionally they are found white his hostess looked at him before answering he was intent on a deep red stone he held in the palm of his hand it seemed a thousand miles deep what a fantastic idea she said she glanced at her husband who had reached out and taken her hand in a naturally affectionate manner fact number four mentally noted Armiston. Are you not in mortal fear of robbery with all this wealth mrs wentworth laughed lightly that is why we live in a fortress she said have you never then been visited by thieves asked the author boldly never she said a lie thought armiston fact number five we are getting on swimmingly i do not believe that even your godal the infallible could get in here Mrs. Wentworth said, "'Not even the servants enter this room. That door is not locked with a key, yet it locks. I am not much of a housekeeper,' she said lazily, "'but such housekeeping as is done in this room is all done by these poor little hands of mine.' "'No, most amazing! May I look at the door?' "'Yes, Mr. Godall,' said this woman, who had lived more lives than Godall himself." Armiston examined the door, this strange device that locked without a key, apparently indeed without a lock, and came away disappointed. Well, Mister Godall," his hostess said tauntingly. He shook his head in perplexity. "Most ingenious," he said, and then suddenly, "Yet I will venture that if I turn Godall loose on this problem, he would solve it." What fun!" she cried, clapping her hands. "'You challenge him?' asked Armiston. "'What nonsense is this?' cried Wentworth, coming forward. "'No nonsense at all,' said Mrs. Wentworth. "'Mr. Armiston has just said that his Godal could rob me. "'Let him try. "'If he can, if mortal man can gain the secret of ingress and egress of this room, "'I want to know it. "'I don't believe mortal man can enter this room.' "'Armiston noted a strange glitter in her eyes.' Cad, she was born to the part what a woman he thought and then aloud i will set him to work i will lay the scene of this exploit in say hungary where this room might very well exist in some feudal castle how many people have entered this room since it was made the storehouse of all this wealth not six besides yourself replied mrs wentworth then no one can recognize it if i describe it in a story in fact i will change the material details we will say that it is not jewels godall is seeking we will say that it is a mrs wentworth's hand touched his own the tips of her fingers were cold a white ruby she said cad what a thoroughbred he exclaimed to himself or to godall and then said aloud capital i will send you a copy of the story autographed the next day he called at the towers and sent up his card to mr benson's apartments Surely a man of Benson's standing could be trusted with such a secret. In fact, it was evidently not a secret to Benson, who, in all probability, was one of the six Mrs. Wentworth said had entered that room. Armiston wanted to talk the matter over with Benson. He had given up his idea of having fun with him by sending him a marked copy of the magazine containing his tale. His story had taken complete possession of him, as always had been the case when he was at work dispatching Godal on his adventures. "'If that ruby really exists,' Armiston said, "'I don't know whether I shall write the story or steal the ruby for myself. Benson is right. Godal should not steal any more for mere money. He is after rare, unique things now. And I am Godal. I feel the same way myself.' The valet appeared, attired in a gorgeous livery. Armiston wondered why any self-respecting American would consent to Don St. Raymond, even though it was the livery of the great Benson family. "'Mr. Armiston, sir,' said the valet, looking at the author's card he held in his hand. "'Mr. Benson sailed for Europe yesterday morning. He is spending the summer in Norway. I am to follow on the next steamer. Is there any message I can take to him, sir?' I have heard him speak of you, sir." Armiston took the card and wrote on it in pencil. I called to apologize. I am Martin Brown. The chance was too good to miss. You will pardon me, won't you?" For the next two weeks Armiston gave himself over to his dissipation, which was accompanying Goldall on this adventure. It was a formidable task. The secret room he placed in a Hungarian castle, as he had promised. A beautiful countess was his heroine. She had seen the world, mostly in men's attire, and her escapades had furnished vivacious reading for two continents. No one could possibly connect her with Mrs. Billy Wentworth. So far it was easy. But how was Goldil to get into this wonderful room where the countess had hidden this wonderful rare white ruby? The room was lined with chilled steel. Even the door, this he had noted when he was examining that particular portal, was lined with layers of steel. It could withstand any known tool. However, Armiston was Armiston, and Godal was Godal. He got into that room. He got the white ruby. The manuscript went to the printers, and the publishers said that Armiston had never done anything like it since he started Godal on his astonishing career. He banked the cheque for his tale, and as he did so, he said, "'Gad, I would a hundred times rather possess that white ruby. Confound the thing! I feel as if I had not heard the last of it.'" Armiston and his wife went to Maine for the summer without leaving their address. Along in the early fall he received, by registered mail, forwarded by his trusted servant at the town-house, a package containing the envelope he had addressed to j borden benson the towers furthermore it contained the dollar bills he had dispatched to that individual together with his note which he had signed martin brown and across the note in the most insulting manner was written in coarse greasy blue pencil lines damnable impertinence i'll cane you the first time i see you and no more that was enough of course quite sufficient in the same mail came a note from armistons publishers saying that his story the white ruby was scheduled for a publication in the october number out september twenty fifth this cheered him up he was anxious to see it in print late in september they started back to town aha he said as he sat reading his paper in the parlor car He had caught this train by the veriest tip of its tail, and upset the running schedule in the act. Ah, I see my genial friend, J. Borden Benson, is in town, contrary to custom at this time of year. Life must be a great bore to that snob. A few days after arriving in town he received a package of advance copies of the magazine containing his story, and he read the tale of the White Ruby as if he had never seen it before. On the cover of one copy, which he was to dispatch to his grumpy benefactor J. Borden Benson, he wrote, "Charmed to be caned. Call any time. See Cohen's, Oliver Armiston." On another, he wrote, "Dear Missus Wentworth, see how simple it is to pierce your fancied security." He dispatched these two magazines with a feeling of glee. No sooner had he done so, however, than he learned that the Wentworths had not yet returned from Newport. The magazine would be forwarded to them, no doubt. The Wentworths' absence made the tale all the better. In fact, for his story, Armiston had insisted on Godal's breaking into the castle and solving the mystery of the keyless door during the season when the chateau was closed and strung with a perfect network of burglar alarms connecting with the gendarmerie in the nearby village. That was the 25th of September. The magazine was put on sale that morning. On the 26th day of September, Armiston bought a late edition of an afternoon paper from a leather-lunged boy who was hawking, extra, in the street. Across the first page the headlines met his eye. ROBBERY AND MURDER IN THE WENTWORTH MANSION private watchmen summoned by burglar alarm at ten o'clock this morning finds servant with skull crushed on floor of mysterious steel doored room murdered man's pockets filled with rare jewels police believe he was murdered by confederate who escaped the wentworth butler stone deaf had just returned from newport to open house at time of murder it was ten o'clock that night when an automobile drew up at armistons door and a tall man with a square jaw square shoes and a square mustache alighted this was deputy police commissioner burns a professional detective whom the new administration had drafted into the city's service from the government secret service burns was admitted and as he advanced to the middle of the drawing-room without so much as a nod to the ghost-like Armiston who stood shivering before him he drew a package of papers from his pocket I presume you have seen all the evening papers, he said, spitting his words through his half closed teeth with so much show of personal malice that Armiston, never a brave man in spite of his Godal, cowered before him. Armiston shook his head dumbly at first, but at length he managed to say, Not all, no. THE DEPUTY COMMISSIONER, WITH MUCH DELIBERATION, DREW OUT THE LATEST EXTRA, AND HANDED IT TO ARMISTON WITHOUT A WORD. IT WAS THE EVENING NEWS. THE FIRST PAGE WAS DIVIDED DOWN ITS ENTIRE LENGTH BY A BLACK LINE. ON ONE SIDE, AND OCCUPYING FOUR COLUMNS, WAS A WORD-FOR-WORD REPRINT OF ARMISTON'S STORY, THE WHITE RUBY. ON THE OTHER, THE FACTS, IN DEADLY PARALLEL, was a graphic account of the robbery and murder at the home of billy wentworth the parallel was glaring in the intensity of its dumb accusation on the one side was the theoretical godol working his masterly way of crime step by step and on the other was the plagiarism of armistan's story following the intricacies of the mastermind with copy-book accuracy the editor Who must have been a genius in his way did not accuse he simply placed the fiction and the facts side by side and let the reader judge for himself it was masterly if as the law says the mind that conceives the intelligence that directs a crime is more guilty than the very hand that acts then armiston here was both thief and murderer thief because the white ruby had actually been stolen Mrs. Billy Wentworth rushed to the city by special train, attended by doctors and nurses, now confirmed the story of the theft of the ruby. Murderer, because in the story, Godall had for once in his career stooped to murder as the means, and had triumphed over the dead body of his confederate, scorning in his joy at possessing the white ruby, the paltry diamonds, pearls, and red rubies with which his confederate had crammed his pockets." Armiston seized the police officials by his lapels. "'The butler!' he screamed. "'The butler! Yes, the butler! Quick or he will have flown!' Burns gently disengaged the hands that had grasped him. "'Too late,' he said. "'He has already flown. "'Sit down and quiet your nerves. "'We need your help. "'You are the only man in the world who can help us now.' When Armiston was himself again, he told the whole tale, beginning with his strange meeting with J. Borden Benson on the train, and ending with his accepting Mrs. Wentworth's challenge to have Godall break into the room and steal the white ruby. Burns nodded over the last part. He had already heard that from Mrs. Wentworth, and there was the autographed copy of the magazine to show for it. "'You say that J. Borden Benson told you of this white ruby in the first place?' Armiston again told, in great detail— The circumstances, all the humour, now turned into grim tragedy. "'That is strange,' said the ex-secret service chief. "'Did you leave your purse at home, or was your pocket picked?' "'I thought at first that I had absent-mindedly left it at home. "'Then I remembered having paid the chauffeur out of the roll of bills, "'so my pocket must have been picked.' "'What kind of a looking man was this Benson?' "'You must know him,' said Armiston.' Yes, I know him, but I want to know what he looked like to you. I want to find out how he happened to be so handy when you were in need of money. Armiston described the man minutely. The deputy sprang to his feet. Come with me, he said, and they hurried into the automobile and soon drew up in front of the towers. Five minutes later they were ushered into the magnificent apartment of J. Borden Benson, That worthy was in his bath, preparing to retire for the night. "'I don't catch the name,' Armiston and the deputy heard him cry through the bathroom door to his valet. "'Mr. Oliver Armiston, sir.' "'Ah, he has come for his caning, I expect. I'll be there directly.' He did not wait to complete his toilet. So eager was he to see the author. He strode out in a brilliant bathrobe, and in one hand he carried an alpenstock. His eyes glowed in anger but the sight of burns surprised as well as halted him do you mean to say this is j borden benson cried armiston to burns rising to his feet and pointing at the man the same said the deputy i swear to it i know him well i take it he is not the gentleman who played your car fare to new haven not by a hundred pounds exclaimed armiston as he surveyed the huge bulk of the elephantine clubman The forced realization that the stranger he had hitherto regarded as a benefactor was not J. Borden Benson at all, but someone who had merely assumed that Worthy's name, while he was playing the conceited author as an easy dupe, did more to quiet Armiston's nerves than all the sedatives his doctors had given him. It was a badly dashed, popular author who sat down with the deputy commissioner in his library an hour later he would gladly have consigned godal to the bottom of the sea but it was too late godal had taken the trick how do you figure it armiston asked turning to the deputy the beginning is simple enough it is the end that bothers me said the official your bogus j borden benson is of course the brains of the whole combination your infernal godal has told us just exactly how this crime was committed now your infernal Godal must bring the guilty parties to justice it was plain to be seen that the police official hated Godal worse than poison and feared him too why not look in the rose gallery for this man who befriended me on the train the chief laughed for the love of heaven Armistan, Do you, who pretend to know all about scientific theory, think for a moment that the man who took your measure so easily is of the class of crooks who get their pictures in the Rose Gallery? Talk sense. I can't believe you when you say he picked my pocket. I don't care whether you believe me or not. He did, or one of his pals did. It all amounts to the same thing, don't you see? First he wanted to get acquainted with you. Now the best way to get into your good graces was to put you unsuspectingly under obligation to him. So he robs you of your money. From what I have seen of you in the last few hours, it must have been like taking candy from a child. Then he gets next to you in line. He pretends that you are merely some troublesome toad in the path. He gives you money for your ticket, to get you out of his way, so he won't miss his train. his train of course his train is your train he puts you in a position where you have to make advances to him and then grinning to himself all the time at your conceit and gullibility he plays you through your pride your godal think of the creator of the great godal falling for a trick like that burns last words were the acme of biting sarcasm you admit yourself that he is too clever for you to put your hands on and then went on burns not heeding the interruption he invites you to lunch and tells you what he wants you to do for him and you follow his lead like a sheep at the tail of the bellwether great scott armiston i would give a year's salary for one hour's conversation with that man armiston was beginning to see the part his queer character had played but he was in a semi-hysterical state and like a woman in such a position He wanted a calm mind to tell him the whole thing in words of one syllable, to verify his own dread. "'What do you mean?' he asked. "'I don't quite follow. You say he tells me what he wants me to do?' Burns shrugged his shoulders in disgust. Then, as if resigned to the task before him, he began his explanation. "'Here, man, I will draw a diagram for you. This gentleman friend of yours—' We will call him John Smith, for convenience. Wants to get possession of this white ruby. He knows that it is in the keeping of Mrs. Billy Wentworth. He knows you know Mrs. Wentworth and have access to her house. He knows that she stole this bauble and is frightened to death all the time. Now John Smith is a pretty clever chap. He handled the great armistice like hot putty. He had exhausted his resources. He's baffled and needs help. What does he do? He reads the stories about the great Godal. Confidently, Mister Armiston, I will tell you that I think your great Godal is mush, but that is neither here nor there. If you can sell him as a gold brick, all right. But Mister John Smith is struck by the wonderful ingenuity of this Godal. He says, "Ha! I will get Godal to tell me how to get this gem." So he gets a hold of yourself, sir and persuades you that you are playing a joke on him by getting him to rant and rave about the great godol then and here the villain enters he says here is a thing the great godol cannot do i dare him to do it he tells you about the jim whose very existence is quite fantastic enough to excite the imagination of the wonderful Armiston. and by clever suggestion he persuades you to lay the plot at the home of mrs wentworth and all the time you were chuckling to yourself, thinking what a rare joke you were going to have on J. Borden Benson, when you sent him an autographed copy, and show him that he was talking to the distinguished genius all the time, and didn't know it. That's the whole story, sir. Byrne sat back in his chair, and regarded Armiston with a smile a pedagogue bestows on a refractory boy whom he has just flogged soundly. "'I will explain further,' he continued. "'You haven't visited the house yet. "'You can't. "'Mrs. Wentworth, for all she is in bed with four dozen hot-water bottles, "'would tear you limb from limb if you went there. "'And don't think for a moment she isn't able to. "'That woman is a vixen.' Armiston nodded gloomily. The very thought of her now sent him into a cold sweat. "'Mr. Godall, the obliging,' continued the deputy, "'notes one thing to begin with.' The house cannot be entered from the outside, so it must be an inside job. How can this be accomplished?' "'Well, there is the deaf butler.' "'Why is he deaf?' Godal ponders. "'Ha! He has it! The Wentworths are so dependent on servants that they must have them round at all times. This butler is the one who is constantly about them. They are worried to death by their possession of this white ruby. Their house has been raided from the inside a dozen times nothing is taken mind you they suspect their servants this thing haunts them but the woman will not give up this foolish bauble so she has as her major domo a man who cannot understand a word in any language unless he is looking at the speaker and is in a bright light he can only understand the lips handy isn't it in a dull light or with their backs turned they can talk about anything they want this is a jewel of a butler but, added Burns, one day a man calls. He is a lawyer. He tells the butler he is heir to a fortune fifty thousand dollars. He must go to Ireland to claim it. Your friend on the train he is the man, of course sends your butler to Ireland, so this precious butler is lost. They must have another, only a deaf one will do. And they find just the man they want quite accidentally, you understand. Of course, it is Godall, with forged letters saying he has been in service in great houses. Presto, the great Godall himself is now the butler. It is simple enough to play deaf. You say this is fiction. Let me tell you this six weeks ago, the Wentworths actually changed butlers. That hasn't come out in the papers yet. Armiston, who had listened to the deputy's review of his story listlessly, now sat up with a start. He suddenly exclaimed gleefully, But my story didn't come out until two days ago. Ah, yes, but you forget that it has been in the hands of your publishers for three months. A man who was clever enough to dupe the great Armiston wouldn't shirk the task of getting hold of a proof of that story. Armiston sank deeper into his chair. Once Godal got inside the house, the rest was simple. He corrupted one of the servants. He opened the steel-lined door with the flame of an oxacetylene blast. As you say in your story, that flame cut steel like wax. He didn't have to bother about the lock. He simply cut the door down. Then he put his confederate in good humor by telling him to fill his pockets with the diamonds and other junk in the safe, which he obligingly opens. One thing bothers me, Armiston. How did you find out about that infernal contraption that killed the Confederate? Armiston buried his face in his hands. Burns ridley shook him. Come, he said, you murdered that man, though you are innocent. Tell me how. Is this the third degree? asked Armiston. It looks like it, said the deputy grimly, as he nodded his stubby mustache. Armiston drew a long breath, like one who realizes how hopeless is his situation. He began to speak in a low tone, all the while the deputy glared at Godall's inventor with his accusing eye. When I was sitting in the treasure-room, with the Wentworths and my wife, playing auction bridge, I dismissed the puzzle of the door, as easily solved by means of the brazing flame. The problem was not to get into the house or into this room, but to find the ruby, it was not in the safe. No, of course not. I suppose your friend on the train was kind enough to tell you that. He probably looked there himself. Gad! He did tell me that, come to think of it. Well, I studied that room. I was sure of the white ruby, if it really existed, was within ten feet of me. I examined the floor, the ceilings, the walls. No result. But he said, shivering, as if in a draft of cold air. There was a chest in that room made of Lombardy oak. The harassed author buried his face in his hands. "'Oh, this is terrible,' he moaned. "'Go on,' said the deputy, in his colourless voice. "'I can't. I tell it all in the story. Heaven help me!' "'I know you tell it all in the story,' came the rasping voice of Burns. But I want you to tell it to me. I want to hear it from your own lips, as Armiston, you understand, whose deviltry has just killed a man, not as your damnable Godal. The chest was not solid oak, went on Armiston. It was solid steel, covered with oak to disguise it. How did you know that? I had seen it before. Where? In Italy, fifteen years ago, in a decayed castle. "'back through the Soldini Pass from Lugano. "'It was the possession of an old nobleman, "'a friend of a friend of mine.' Hm," grunted the deputy. "'And then? "'Well, how did you know it was the same one?' "'By the inscription carved on the front, "'It was... "'But I've told you all this in print already. "'Why need I go over it all again?' "'I want to hear it again from your own lips.' Maybe there are some points you did not tell in print. Go on. The inscription was Sanctus Dominus. The deputy smiled grimly. Very fitting, I should say. Praise the Lord, with the most diabolical engine of destruction I have ever seen. And then, said Armiston, there was the owner's name. Arno Petroni. Queer name, that. Yes, said the deputy dryly how did you hit on this as the receptacle for the white ruby if it were the same one i saw in lugano and i felt sure it was it was certain death to attempt to open it that is for one who did not know how such machines were common enough in the middle ages there was an obvious way to open it it was meant to be obvious to open it that way was inevitable death it released tremendous springs that crushed anything within a radius of five feet you saw that? I did, said the deputy, and he shuddered as he spoke. Then, bringing his fierce face within an inch of the cowering Armiston, he said, You knew the secret spring by which that safe could be opened as simply as a shoe box, eh? Armiston nodded his head. But Godall did not, he said. Having recognized this terrible chest, went on the author, I guessed it must be the hiding place of the jewel. For two reasons in the first place mrs wentworth had avoided showing it to us she passed it by as a mere bit of curious furniture second it was too big to go through the door or any one of the windows they must have gone to the trouble of taking down the wall to get that thing in there something of a task too considering it weighs about two tons you didn't bring out that point in your story didn't i i fully intended to "'Maybe,' said the deputy, watching his man sharply, "'it so impressed your friend who paid your car fare to New Haven "'that he clipped it out of the manuscript when he borrowed it.' "'There is no humour in this affair, sir, if you will pardon me,' said Armiston. "'That is quite true. Go ahead.' "'The rest you know. Godal, in my story, the thief in real life, "'had to sacrifice a life to open that chest,' So he corrupted a small kitchen servant, filling his pockets with these other jewels, and told him to touch the spring. "'You murdered that man in cold blood,' said the deputy, rising and pacing the floor. "'The poor deluded devil, from the looks of what's left of him, never let out a whimper, never knew what hit him. "'Here, take some more of this brandy. Your nerves are in a bad way.' "'What I can't make out is this.' said Armiston, after a time. There was a million dollars worth of stuff in that room that could have been put into a court measure. Why did not this thief, who was willing to go to all the trouble to get the white ruby, take some of the jewels? Nothing is missing besides the white ruby, as I understand it. Is there?' "'No,' said the deputy. "'Not a thing. Here comes a messenger boy.' "'For Mr. Armiston?' Yes, he said to the entering maid. The boy handed him a package for which the deputy signed. This is for you, he said, turning to Ormiston as he closed the door. Open it. When the package was opened, the first object to greet their eyes was a roll of bills. This grows interesting, said Burns. He counted the money. Thirty nine dollars. Your friend evidently is returning the money he stole from you at the station. What does he have to say for himself i see there is a note he reached over and took the paper out of armiston's hands it was ordinary bond stationery with no identifying marks of any consequence the note was written in bronze ink in a careful copperplate hand very small and precise it read most excellency sir herewith most honored dollars i am dispatching complete most excellency sir herewith most honored dollars i am dispatching complete regretful extremely of sad blood being not to be prevented except trifle from true friend that was all there's a jeweler's box said burns open it inside the box was a lozenge-shaped diamond about the size of a little fingernail. it hung from a tiny bar of silver "'highly polished and devoid of ornament. "'On the back, under the clasp-pin, "'were several microscopic characters. "'There were several obvious clues to be followed. "'The messenger boy, "'the lawyers who induced the deaf butler to go to Ireland "'on what later proved to be a wild goose chase, "'the employment agency through which the new butler "'had been secured, and so on. "'But all of these avenues proved too respectable "'to yield results.' Deputy Burns had early arrived at his own conclusions, by virtue of the knowledge he had gained as government agent. Yet to appease the popular indignation, he kept up a desultory search for the criminal. It was natural that Armiston should think of his friend, Johansen at this juncture. Johansen possessed that wonderful oriental capacity for aloofness, which we Westerners are so ready to term indifference or lack of curiosity no i thank you said johansen i'd rather not mix in the pleadings of the author were in vain his words fell on deaf ears if you will not lift a hand because of your friendship for me said armiston bitterly then think of the law surely there is something due justice when both robbery and bloody murder have been committed Justice cried johansen in scorn justice you say my friend if you steal from me and i reclaim by force that which is mine is that injustice if you cannot see the idea behind that surely then i cannot explain it to you answer one question said armistan have you any idea who the man was i met on the train for your own peace of mind yes as a clue leading to what you so glibly termed justice tonight sundown would be easier for you to catch than this man if i know him mind you armiston i do not know but i believe here is what i believe in a dozen courts of kings and petty princelings that i know of in the east there are westerners retained as advisers fiscal agents they are usually called usually they are american or english or occasionally german now i ask you a question Say that you were in the hire of a heathen prince, and a grievous wrong were done that prince. Say, by a thoughtless woman, who had not the least conception of the beauty of an idea she had outraged, merely for the possession of a bauble, valueless to her except to appease vanity, she ruthlessly rode down a superstition that was as holy to this prince as your own belief in Christ is to you. What would you do?' Without waiting for Armiston to answer, Johansen went on. I know a man—you say this man you met on the train had wonderful hands, did he not? Yes, I thought so, Armistan. I know a man who would not sit idly by and smile to himself over the ridiculous fuss occasioned by the loss of an imperfect stone, off-color, badly cut, and everything else. Neither would he laugh at the superstition behind it he would say to himself, "'This superstition is older by several thousand years "'than I or my people. "'And this man, whom I know, "'is brave enough to right that wrong himself "'if his underlings failed.' "'I follow,' said Armiston dully. "'But,' said Johansen, "'leaning forward and tapping the author on the knees, "'but the task proved too big to him. "'What did he do?' He asked the cleverest man in the world to help him and godall helped him that said johansen interrupting armstrong with a raised finger is the story of the white ruby the story of the white ruby you see is something infinitely finer than mere vulgar robbery and murder as the author of the infallible godall conceived it johansen said a great deal more in the end he took the lozenge-shaped diamond pendant and put the glass on the silver bar that his friend might see the inscription on the back he told him what the inscription signified brother of a king and furthermore how few men alive possessed the capacity for brotherhood i think said Armiston, as he was about to take his leave that i will travel in the straits this winter if you do said johansen I earnestly advise you to leave your Godall and his decoration at home. End of section nineteen of The American Rivals of Sherlock Holmes. End of part two of The Infallible Goldall by Frederick Irving Anderson.